we may be one of the you know top two in terms of size in the country, but that's not what makes us really proud. What makes us proud is to continue to have a physician-focused organization that does good work and, and helps people. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. IVF technology was in its very early stages in 1986 when Dr. Michael Alper, who's my guest on Inside Reproductive Health today, co-founded Boston IVF, now one of the nation's largest IVF centers and one of the nation's first freestanding IVF centers. The goal was to transform state-of-the-art technologies into a patient-centered outpatient setting. Dr. Alper has led Boston IVF as its medical director for over 20 years and remains instrumental in helping to make it one of the most well-respected academically affiliated IVF IVF centers in the world. We're going to talk about that academic affiliation, the different stages of growth. Dr. Alper, Michael, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Hey, Griffin. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. I'm interested in exploring the trajectory of your practice group because I've had other guests on the show. Dr. Michael Levy was one. We talked about Shady Grove and asked him, did you set out to make something that big? And you know, when I'm starting building my own company, I'm thinking of the growth ahead of time. And sometimes it, it isn't that way. So for you, did you set out to create one of the largest groups in the country? At what point did that growth start? And I guess, what was the ambition from the outset? I never believed really that we'd end up being one of the largest in the United States and obviously feel very fortunate to have taken, you know, participate in, in our growth. But, you know, our, our beginning was really interesting. And I'm sure it has a lot of analogies with Dr. Levy's experience and others. You know, we started back in 1986. And if you remember, IVF was just coming into the United States in the early 80s. So in 1986, most IVF was done in a hospital setting, not in a private setting. So I was finishing my fellowship in 1986, and a few of the doctors at the hospital, the fertility specialists, came to the realization that it's not as easy to do IVF in a hospital setting compared to an outpatient setting, right? You know, patients would have to run to one department to have their ultrasound, another department to have their blood test, see the doctor in the, in the clinic somewhere else, not very patient-friendly. So back then in 1986, there were very few, if any, outpatient IVF centers. They were all done in hospitals. And of course, that's where research is often started. So we were, I was a fellow, part of the division, and we decided to leave the hospital. Well, I'll tell you that I got my first dose of, I'll call it medical politics. You know, we were the bad boys. <laughs> <laughs> and we were called all kinds of nasty things back then, you know, entrepreneurs and whatever, just nasty things. So that went on for about two years. And then what happened is that the chairman of the department had changed and basically came back and talked to us and said, you know, maybe you're not as bad as we thought. Why don't you become the division of reproductive endocrinology at Harvard Medical School, Beth Israel Hospital? And the reason for that is all the patients were coming to see us, number one. And number two, our core values and our DNA, really, 
is academics and research. We love doing it. So, you know, fast forward to today for the last 25 years or so, we've been a private practice, but yet we run the academic arm of the division within the hospital. So we do teaching, you know, all the residents, our fellowship is really housed at Boston IVF. So that's where our fellows are trained. Their offices are with us. So we feel very fortunate because we have the the best of both worlds. We have the autonomy of a private practice, yet uh, the fun of uh, teaching and uh, doing research. That started only two years after you had built the outpatient IVF center? That's correct. Just just uh, maybe two, three years afterwards, we began to kind of reaffiliate with the hospital. Because what had happened, unfortunately, when we left the hospital, the hospital still continued with their IVF program. But over a couple of years, it just didn't do that well. And all the patients were, were gravitating to us. So it made total sense to sort of combine efforts and create one program. And you said you were still a fellow when you left... Yes. My, back then, fellowships were two years, and I did a fellowship from 1984 to 1986 at the hospital here in Boston. And in fact, I actually did two fellowships. I did another two-year fellowship in Canada before then, where my roots are. But yeah, so it was right after my fellowship that we set up Boston IVF. It was myself and three other physicians. Was part of that reason so that you could practice more in infertility treatment? Dr. Serena Chen tells me sometimes that in in around that time period, it's and it's hard to imagine now that a lot of REI fellows were completing training and then going back to do obstetrics. They were delivering babies. Is part of the reason why you left to to build the outpatient center because you wanted to practice more of the eye of REI? Yeah. Partly, but mainly, it was because we really felt that to have a patient-centric center, you really need to have a high, highly specialized unit where it's just convenient for a patient to show up in one office, have their bloods, ultrasound, office visits, ultimately their egg retrieval and transfer in one location. Now it's commonplace, obviously. Most IVF centers are, are freestanding, but back then it wasn't, and it was very cumbersome for patients to go through treatment. Obviously, treatment still has its challenges, but it's much friendlier now because everything's centralized. That wasn't the case back in the late 80s. So you leave the REI division, you start your own center. Two years later, you're invited back to be the REI division. If I'm not mistaken, Harvard Medical has three partner health systems, but how does that partnership begin? How do you go from where we've left, now we're a private group, and now we're associated with the hospital again? What does that partnership entail? Well, it actually was kind of a natural, sort of a natural evolution, I would say. You know, we had relationships with the OBGYNs in the hospital, in the community. And we still had excellent relationships, despite the fact that we kind of went on our own, if you will. And we always practiced in a way that was, you know, straightforward, honest. We just, people liked us, what it came down to, and respected our ability to properly take care of patients. So it was a natural process once the chairman of the department had had changed and saw that we can have a great partnership. And in fact, back in the 1990s, an article was written in Fertility Sterility about this very relationship that kind of bringing academics and private practice together makes so much sense where you bring skill sets from both sides together, you know, under one roof, so to speak. So, you know, that it was a natural process and 
all the stakeholders benefited. In a scenario like that, where the the fellowship is run in concert with a private practice, you feel that those fellows get more business training or at least some business exposure, or would you say that, you know, it's pretty similar to what they might experience in an entirely academic setting? Well, I wouldn't say that they get a lot of business exposure. They get a lot of clinical exposure, obviously, because we're because of our size and just the volume of embryo transfers and egg retrievals and, and surgery that they do really excels. But in terms of the business, the business and the practice are kind of separated. One of the things that we learned very early is that it's much better to have physicians concentrate on the practice of medicine and disconnect the finances from their practice. And that's why we have a pretty strong administrative team. We have a CEO, a CFO, a COO. These are really skilled, wonderful people who who make sure the business runs properly and allows the physicians to, you know, to practice medicine. I think what happens very often, as you know, in practices, probably most of the time, especially in moderate sized practices, you, you have one physician who's becomes the sort of administrative leader in the group. But that ha- that's not very scalable because if that doctor's practicing medicine and also trying to manage all the day-to-day operations, it, it could be pretty overwhelming. So we-, we-, we realized early that you need to have a strong administrative team to support the doctors. I'm very interested in how that administrative team works with the physician partnership. But let's first talk about how you grew into that. I guess I'm more familiar with Boston IVF a bit more starting in the late 2000s, but let's stay in the 80s for a second. Then I want to see what happened in the 90s. But when you started the program in 86, you co-founded it. And so how many of there were you? And then what was the next step for growth? I believe Dr. Oskowitz was one of yeah, the yeah. co-founders. Dr. Berger, Dr. Oskowitz, Dr. Thompson, and myself, we were four physicians. I'm the only one uh, sort of, I was the youngest one at the time and, and, and the one that's still standing, I would say. So not a bad, not a bad play for all the fellows listening, thinking of going into that there can be an upside. You might outpace everybody else. So you, well, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Griffin, the, I, I feel very fortunate. I've had one job my whole life for 30, whatever years. And so my CV is actually from an employment point of view, just a very tiny paragraph. But which your podcast host appreciates, by the way. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) But in terms of sort of the what happened from the late 80s to the 90s, as we were four physicians, as I said, three have since retired from being partners and myself remaining. We one of the challenges of a practice is to attract the best clinicians possible and to retain them. And our philosophy from the very early days is the way to do that is to make them partners where they have, you know, use a classic expression, get in the game, so to speak, where they feel emotionally attached to the company and feel part of it. So we have brought on numerous physicians, just like Shady Grove, as you mentioned, I'm sure Mike could elaborate on his experience, but we created a method to bring talented partners on board. And that sounds easy, but in fact, you know, we learned a lot along the way. And, you know, right now we have 14 partners and so, so everybody feels more part of it. And then, so that's what's happened over the last, you know, 20 plus years. We've, we've, one of the great advantages of having a fellowship program is that you work with fellows and 
we've hired many of our fellows in our program. So that's been a tremendous advantage for us. And they know they know the way we practice and, and our systems, if you will. So we've grown and, you know, expanded. And I'm happy to talk to you a bit more on how that, that happened. But yes, we were in the Boston area and still are in the Boston area. That's where our main facility is. But we've expanded throughout the country to, well, basically diversify a little bit. And yeah, so that's been a, a great experience. I'm interested in in that trajectory and how you make those decisions. So you start off with four founding partners. As you're expanding and acquiring talent, the best way that you find to do that is to make people partners. Does that start with hiring a few associate doctors and then you're hiring them as employees and then bringing them on as partners? Is that what happened after four? Yeah, exactly. Basically, you date and then you get married. And it's the same thing with a partnership. I think the most important thing about a partnership is that it's a good marriage. And I will tell you that I love every one of the physicians as part of our group, not just, you know, professionally, but they're fantastic people. We all get along extremely well. And we all have fun and, and enjoy our work. That's the most important thing. And and so you want to, you, you know, you want to make sure that whoever you bring on board as a partner has the same, you know, the same philosophy about practice and is easy to, to get along with because there's so many practices in any medical field that, you know, don't work out so well. So we, we've done, a, I must say, a pretty good job of dating, if you will. And so especially since we've hired many fellows, we know them really well because they spent three years with us. So. So that's a, that's a great advantage. But yeah, so, you know, attracting the right associates and making them feel part of it is, is you know, really critical to the success of a, of a program, in my opinion. It certainly has worked well for us. How do you either enumerate or quantify or at the very least elucidate the criteria of what is a good fit in this dating analogy that this is ultimately what we're looking for in a partner should we both choose to to do this? One of the things I've been writing more about is how buy-in agreements might need to be referenced more finitely within employment agreements that this at the end of that, both parties can say, yes, this is a good fit or it isn't, or these key performance indicators were met or they weren't objectively. So how do you make, uh, we're, we both have the same philosophy and the same core values. How do you make that into something that's measurable and tangible? Right. So I'd probably break it down into you know a couple of different areas. The first area, and this is number one, number two, and number three, that person has to be a really good doctor. That's the most important thing. And when I mean good doctor, I mean not just up on knowledge and, and good clinical skills. I mean good with patients, doesn't mind going, you know, going to the nth degree to to help people nurses uh, admired by nurses and, and uh, other colleagues. That's totally, you know, really critical. It's just a, a very good clinician, number one. Number two is they have to meet some productivity baseline. And you can you can set it in different ways, whether it's a certain revenue volume or cycle volume or something, but they have to be contributing to the success of the uh, company. And then they have to, you know, be employed for a period of time. And it varies amongst our partners for a variety of reasons. But uh, in general, three to five years, you know, is kind of a, a timeline being an associate before you become a, a partner. And some of it actually been associates longer. But so there's duration, there's productivity, 
and above all, you know, skills as a, as a, as a physician. Those are the key elements. Some groups want all of their doctors to become partners. It sounds like that might be your philosophy when you say that partnership is, is part of what you use for attracting and retaining good doctors. Other groups are perfectly content having someone be an employee for the duration of their career. Where do you all stand on that? Not everybody should or wants to be a partner. I think, you know, so in our situation, the decision is fairly easy because the way we constructed is that we actually lend the money to them to buy their shares and spread it over time. So we make it financially very tolerable and not financially too difficult to become a partner. So, but not everybody is interested in becoming a partner or necessarily should become a partner. I think it's very individual. I think most of the time, at least in our program. I haven't met anybody who didn't want to become a partner. So we're in the 90s. We're bringing on partners by first having them work as employees, dating before you're getting married. You're expanding the number of physicians and partners in the practice group. When did you do your first merger acquisition with another group? And how did you judge that opportunity? So we, so we were and are the dominant program in, in the greater Boston area and have been that way you know, since the 80s, late 80s. And we maintained a certain you know, market share, I'd say, for many, many years. But we found that since we have very good programs in Boston, the competition was quite significant. We weren't seeing sort of the double-digit growth that we saw in the early days. We've been growing every single year since our inception, but the, the, the rate of growth had slowed. So we were looking for, you know, what other opportunities can we take advantage of to continue growth? So uh, we did a few things. One is we purchased a practice of a, a prominent REI in the Boston area. And that entity became a, sort of a subsidiary of Boston IVF. That was one move that was actually terrific. Then we- Was that a single doc practice? A single doctor practice. And then after that, we merged with a very large program, a Reproductive Science Center of Boston. They were quite, quite large and, and one of the prominent reproductive science centers, you know, IntegraMed centers that decided after their contract was completed with IntegraMed that they wanted to sort of go it on their own. That was in 2014. And that was, so we, it was a, we'll call it a cashless merger where you had the two entities that were evaluated. And we all became new shareholders in a, a new entity. And that was a very interesting and learning experience for all of us. Kind of tricky, you know, uh, when you have two cultures, uh, two competitors for 20 years, and all of a sudden, your partners, it takes a while to adjust. And to be quite frank, the first you know year or so was just rocky because everybody was sort of set in their ways about how they did things and how things ran. And, but you fast forward to today, it's been a fantastic experience. We're all together. We all are, you know, we merged all our systems and, you know, everybody feels, you know, as one. But yeah, that was a huge merger. I think the largest merger in the industry up until maybe EV RMA merger. But so, so this was a, a, you know, certainly the largest local merger. 
between two uh, competitors. So how did you overcome those ro- rocky waters? Because it, it almost seems like it would be harder in a cashless merger. If it's if it's an acquisition, then you tell the principal, this is what your earnout says. And so therefore <laughs> you all are doing this. And it, it almost seems like it, it would be harder. So how do you come to terms and, and keep the new entity of not just get over it, but making sure that you're doing what you set out to do, which is synergistic growth. Right, right. No, excellent question. And I would say that I learned a lot on how to get into people's heads. It may sound strange, but when we first decided to merge and went through the process, and we were competitors for all these years, everybody had an impression of the other side, if you will. So reproductive science center physicians would think, oh, Boston IVF is like this. And, and as you know, confirmation bias plays, plays a huge role in how people view the world, right? So, so there was a lot of, you know, just suspicion, I guess, because of being competitors for so long. But then I got to know the individuals and, tr- and I got to know how everybody's thinking. And it all made sense. You know, their fears, their anxiety, their concern about losing their identity, all these sort of factors. Once you throw them on the table and you talk about them in real human terms, you start to chip away at it. And you start you start to develop a relationship. So that's what happened. It took, I'd say, a year or two of lots of discussions, lots of meetings, a lot of compromises, a lot of fairness on both sides. And it worked out great. But neither of us, both sides, didn't have any experience with this. So we learned along the way. Do you suppose it takes about that long for the dissolution of the individual identities as well? You know, I think Mad Men was one of my favorite shows and their group merges with Ted Chow's group, who, as you mentioned, they had been rivals for years and always a uh, thorn in the other side and then they come together and in the beginning this is our team this is our team this is our way this is our way but eventually those identities just start to dissipate because they're in the building together working with the same clients working on building the same business and eventually you know well this was my partner and my team but now I have some rapport with you and and I'm I'm starting to like this way better. Does it take a, about that long for the former yeah. identities to dissipate? I think, yeah, Griffin, I think you're absolutely right. It probably takes about a, a year or two. And I'm sure there's an, an analogy with how, how having to cope with a, you know, a deceased one in the family or something like that where there's a grieving process. Because one side, especially, could be losing their identity. And they have to go through a process of, you know, first reacting to it, how, how to deal with it. And then at the end of the day, it comes down to just developing relationships and beginning to trust each other and realize that it's in everybody's interest to make the combined entity successful. And But it takes, you You have to count on a, about a year or more to, to just let that take its course. And now I must say, we, we, are, we are so thrilled to be a, a bigger group, a, a more dynamic group. We actually learned from each other a lot because, you know, we were two separate entities doing things slightly different. So we had innumerable meetings on looking at data and, and protocols and combining protocols and, and just the learning from both sides. To, to do, you know, to do as best as we can. So yeah, absolutely. It's, I totally underestimated the length of time and, and frankly, the amount of energy 
that goes into making these, these things happen. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now back to inside reproductive health. So a couple decades of adding partners, a single physician, doctor group acquisition, a merger with a very large group to be the largest merger in the field up to that point. And then at what point do you decide, okay, we're in New England, we've got a really big presence here, and now there are other markets to serve? whether it's New York or, you know, it, it, to a casual observer, Indiana and Arizona seem pretty far from Boston. Right, how, do you, right. how do you decide on, on making those moves? So, so good question. I think at our root is sort of a certain amount of curiosity and creativity. And as I mentioned, we were continuing to grow every single year and business was good. Clinic, you know, clinical work was good, but we wanted a challenge and we wanted to prove to ourselves that we can replicate ourselves outside of Massachusetts. So we had our eyes on Maine and make a long story very short, the university up there set up an IVF program. They invited us to join and make it a joint project, but at the end of the day, they, they wanted to make a go at it themselves and it just failed. We took over the space. We placed one of our fellows there to lead the, lead the charge. And it just grew great. And we're the only IVF program in, in Maine. And it's been a great success. And so that we said, hey, that's pretty cool. It's only, you know, a couple hours north of Boston. And we have a freestanding IVF center that's, you know, providing good service to the community. That, that made us feel pretty good. And after that, we said, okay, we can replicate ourselves outside of Massachusetts. It's actually an unfortunate story. A colleague of mine from Albany, New York, called me. It's an REI you speak to maybe two, three times a year. See him in meetings and you know, talk to him on the phone. He said, Mike, you won't believe this. I'm on my way to Boston. I'm, I'm going to the Dana Farber Hospital, which is a cancer 
hospital. I had, and he was a young guy in his fifties. And he said, I just have this mass and we're concerned about it. Make a long story short. He called me, told me he had very serious terminal cancer. He died six months later. And when he, when I spoke to him on the phone, I he kept on saying he was a one man REI IVF program. He said, I just worry about my staff. I don't know what's going to happen to them when I, when I die. And you know, I, I visit him a lot up in Albany and, and try to help him, him and his, you know, his family get through it. But he passes away. And I told him, I said, listen, this is almost on his deathbed. I said, don't worry about anything. We'll take care of your IVF program. I knew nothing about it. I didn't know if it was successful. I didn't know if it was profitable. <laughs> I didn't know anything. But I just felt it was obviously the right thing to do. So we purchased the assets after he passed on. And we hired a fellow to join the practice, myself. And this is really our model, is that we find a young, talented physician to be the lead physician in the center. And then we have more senior physicians going there frequently to support that person. So I was I was seeing patients in Albany, Steve Beer, another colleague of mine, Alan Penzias, another colleague. We kept on going to Albany to work with Sonia, who's our lead physician in Albany, to support her so she didn't feel alone. You know, come out of a fellowship to be the sort of director of a program is pretty scary. So we supported her for a year or two. Program did extremely well. It's very busy. In fact, we just hired another physician to join this last year. So that worked out really well. We said, wow, this is this is great. But that was just told by chance. It was wasn't something that was planned. So how are as you're acquiring the practice here, you're expanding, you've merging, how are you the partner physicians, but specifically you, Michael, how are you learning the business knowledge that you need to at this? Are you just online at night, Googling everything you can? Are you uh, calling old college friends? I, I mean, I'm sure you have advisors, but how are in consultants that you pay for, but how are you increasing your business knowledge to be able to do all of these things? Well, so I'm learning along the way and, you know, trying to learn from my mistakes and and the things I, I did well and learning the very basics of business, kind of, you know, an MBA, very high level, like, you know, the, what's that book, MBA for Idiots, you know, that <laughs> book where you, you have everything concisely written. I read that book, by the way, just to learn a little things and surround myself by good business people. You know, that's the trick and good operations people. And so I looked at myself as sort of helping guide from a philosophical and strategic point of view, where I think the practice should go. But I was fortunate enough to to surround myself with skilled business people to help me. That, that's the short answer. And, you know, I, I think when it comes to business decisions, I've learned over the years that business is just is really just an extension of relationships. You know, when you're doing a business transaction with somebody, it's important that they trust you. They feel you're honest. A lot of psychology to it and relationship building. And, you know, I think that's one thing that I've, I've tried my best to, to work at over, over the years and try to be honest with people and trustworthy. And, and, and that's, those sort of things develop relationships where people wanted to do business with us. We're one of the probably the few IVF programs in, in the area where we have REI physicians knocking on our door looking for looking for work to work with us because we're fortunate enough to have a good reputation in, in the community. But to answer your question is I learned it on the front lines 
And I've had the fortune to have uh, smart people around me who can help me and teach me. And you mentioned that you put the structure in place where you have an administrative team, you've got a CEO, a CFO. When did that start? We've talked on the show and I've had a few different guests opine on that, that maybe it happens at at, at five doctors in, you know, maybe it Maybe for some it's it's later, but so I've worked with mid-sized groups before, and when I see them not have that team at probably the five, it's probably the five to seven doctor range where I think it starts to really hurt if they don't have that. When was that for you that you started to put the administrative team and and what were the pieces in sequence? Yeah, no, uh, good question. I, I'd say it's about twenty years ago. We realized that we really need strong people to to run an organization properly. So we were, yeah. So we actually did when we were four or five positions, as you pointed out. That seems to be the point where you you do need, you know, sort of a, just a, an office manager type, you know, to handle everything is probably inadequate when you're, you know, four or five positions. So you need somebody with experience who can lead the way, and then. You know, whether you need a full-time CFO or a part-time CFO, you know, that, you know, individual programs could decide. But certainly at our size, we have very detailed metrics about everything we do because, you know, our one of our focuses is quality control. And we're really the only ISO, I believe, the only ISO certified IVF program in North America. And we have very tight systems and, and we're constantly monitoring things, constantly trying to improve on, on the business end and also more importantly, on the clinical and science end. So, yeah, I think I think you have, you know, our CFO, who is kind of a whiz kid with Excel and 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 data, really helps us enormously in terms of understanding our our operation. And so, how does that executive team work in concert with uh, physician partners? Because what I could see going wrong in that transition is, as you mentioned before, the partner physician that tends to be the lead, and and you know, in a four or five doc practice, they still are. Then they hire this executive, but they don't totally give away control or they come in and muddle everything up. So, how does now your physician partners? interface with the executive team and how did that structure build over time? Yeah. So, you know, a a common issue that comes up in practices of, you know, five, six doctors and one administrator is that all the shareholder physicians are knocking at the door of the administrator every five minutes to try to either influence a certain decision or, or make a point or what have you. And at some point that gets untenable. You know, it just gets difficult to manage a practice that way. So what I've tried to do is, of course, the door of the CEO is open and and my door is open, of course, but I try to represent the interests of the physicians to the the administrative team. So if there's a problem, I'd prefer then direct it. If a physician has an issue, they can direct it to me and, of course, meet with the CEO of the company. But I think you raise a very important point. I think also, you know, you may find this surprising, but doctors could have egos. And sometimes it's very difficult. I'm shaking for... my head in disbelief for those listening <laughs> yeah, on audio. I know. It's, it's, it's a very rare thing, as I'm, I'm sure you understand. But what happens is sometimes there is a conflict or, or the, the lines are not clear between the administrator and the sort of lead physician. So I think... I mean, just my style, I guess, is that nothing gives me more pleasure to see our CEO successful or our CFO successful because it's a great reflection on the company and ourselves. So uh, you raise an issue that I think a little tricky in some practices where they 
they have this called strain or stress on that on that relationship. And I think, especially for doctors who, you know, started the practice, and we're kind of the, the pioneers and the, you know, the practice is more known by the doctor, the lead doctor than the name of the practice, those kind of practices, which are, there's a, a fair number, right? That's a situation where you just need to be careful and, and figure out some job descriptions where everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And that there's, you know, we're, you need a team and, you know, a lead physician, a medical director type of person has to interface really well with the administrator. Otherwise, things don't work well. And, and nobody can do everything. And so it probably begs the, the response or the, the question that maybe different groups have different needs from what that administrator is. Because in some groups, it is a chief executive officer. In other groups, it's a chief operating officer. What, uh, it, for, you, for me, those definitions might mean visionary in one sense, integrator in the other. What does that chief executive need to do? So in, at a very high level, the chief executive officer reports to the board of directors and the board of directors work with the CEO to set the strategy. That's number one, strategy. Are um, all of the partner physicians among the board of directors? On a rotational basis, yes. Over the years, you know, we've rotated. It'd be too cumbersome to have everybody. So mm-hmm. we try to rotate. But yeah, I mean, I think setting the strategy is is, is key. And the other role of, uh, of the head administrator or CEO, whatever the t- CEO, whatever the title may be, is to really be the reference to all the other managers in the company. So head of ultrasound, finance, accounting, billing, you know, nursing, whatever, you need to develop the team. And as you know, in, in, in our field and in many other fields, we tend, it's easy to become very siloed and just focus on your own little world in the practice and not see the big picture. I think it's uh, the CEO really is responsible for that to make sure that all the different administrators or or key people have somebody to go to. And it sets the tone and, and it sets the culture for the for the practice, which is key. So you've got the administrative team in place. You've got a board of directors. You've got 14 partners. You've, you've done acquisition. You've merged with another big group up until this point. Now, how do you collectively make the decisions of, you know, let's pursue private equity or let's entertain this offer that PE firm has presented to us? And I'm sure you get plenty of those calls. How do you make that decision together? So as you may or may not know, we partnered with an entity called Eugen, E-U-G-I-N, which is a company in, in Barcelona, in Spain. Actually, Eugen is one of the largest next to or in parallel with Evie largest IV, uh, company of IVF centers in the world. Eugen has clinics in Spain, Italy, Denmark, Sweden, Brazil, South America, and now the U.S. with us. And they're a strategic partner because they're in the field. We've been approached by numerous private equity firms over the last three years, mainly because we're national and obviously large size. And I must tell you, we didn't have the right fit because, as you know, private equity is there to invest for the short term and increase the profitability and then sell in three to five years. And that's not my horizon. And I I would venture to believe it's not the horizon of most physicians, although some physicians are interested in exiting you know, in three to five years. And private equity is a, a you know, could be the, the way to do it. You know, if that's, if that's their personal goal. 
but we're more longer term players. We have young positions in our group. We see our field is growing and we really want to have, we wanted to have a partner that was more strategic. So it's an individual choice for, you know, for any, anybody who's being approached. But, you know, what I tell all my colleagues who ask me these questions, I say, the most important thing about these transactions are the, is what the, what the day is like after the transaction closes. <laughs> because, you know, these are the... Uh, Which I think the jury is still out on a lot of this right now because a lot of these deals are only a, a couple years old at this point. So well, what the day is like, I think we're finding out right now in many cases. I, I'll tell you, and I'm just being totally frank with you, Griffin, is that I'm quite concerned about it. I'm quite concerned about it because when money takes over medicine, it's not in the best interest of patients a lot of the time. And medicine is not, and specifically reproductive endocrinology, is not like, you know, dentistry. There is, there are a lot of emotions. It's a complex thing. And I worry when a company owns an IVF program and their focus is on the money, it could be a real problem. And then the interests of the major investor and the remaining shareholders start to diverge. And, you know, as you know, private equity starts to look at the bottom line and the EBITDA and starts to, you know, you can't go to an IVF center and say you reduce your nurses by 30% because you're, you're positioning yourself for a sale. That's not a good thing. So it, was, it didn't feel right for us. I'm not saying it's, you know, it's wrong for certain centers, but in terms of the field, I think we need to be really careful. And our strategy was different. It's to partner with somebody who's in the industry, who's a long-term player. And so our partnership with Eugen is very simple. They're using Boston IVF as a vehicle to expand. We're in discussions with several centers and we'll have some announcements soon becoming partners with them. So now you have an IVF center, not a private equity firm, being a partner with, with a particular center in the country. So our model's different. But yeah, we'll, we'll see, as you point out, we'll see how it all turns out. But I think we need to be, be careful. Well, I'm with you that it's a three to five year thinking that I'm, you know, some, that I'm sometimes weary of, but very often it's, it's shorter than that. It can be quarterly. And that's what I'm weary of. I'll play, I'll say the other side of that, which is I sometimes see the smaller practices or, or independent practices that are less likely to invest in patient experience because they feel pretty cozy. And the Smithian argument is that if there's capital interests competing with one another, that they have to innovate, that they have to provide added value in order to win in the marketplace. And I think there's some truth to that. I think the danger is when there's those three to five year or quarterly pressures, even shorter term. And so I like the groups that are may not be holding to that. You're building for the long term, but also you're high enough growth to where if you want to enter new markets, if you want to retain market share and keep some of these other competitors out, you still have to invest in the patient experience and raise the standard of care that way. Is there, you, you're the last, so speaking of long term, you're the last of the four remaining partners still active within the group. Is that by design, or did you just luck out that you had three guys that are willing to retire? Are you is your structure built in such a way that partners have to phase out at a certain age so that you don't yeah. get top heavy, so that younger docs can buy in and yeah. 
contributed? Yeah. So, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer to this. We, in our partnership agreement, we have a, an age cutoff where somebody's obliged to, you know, sell their shares. They can still work, but they have sell their shares from the partnership. And, you know, with any of these transactions, private equity or strategic partnerships, they usually have a lockout period where, you know, once a transaction occurs, you don't want all the doctors to run out the, the door because that makes the investment pretty poor. So there, there's, there's, there's those parts of it as well. But yeah, I mean, you know, partnership agreements are, you know, complex things, but I will tell you that what we thought is, you know, what, what you don't want in a partnership is not having an elegant way for a physician who's about to retire to leave. In other words, if there's no package or incentive to leave, they just hang around being less productive because that's what happens with age. It's a normal process. Uh, less productive. They don't want to they they want to leave but they don't want to leave because they get nothing if they leave. So they hang around and it just doesn't work out well in the long run. So you have to have a mechanism of allowing retired physicians to leave with some some security and dignity and you know but that believe it or not it doesn't happen very commonly now no and that's why you know i when you say there's not a right or wrong way i, I don't know i think there's there's some <laughs> wrong ways i'm i there's an example that we're looking at right now and it is really messing things up with this group that there's it is making it really hard for two doctors to become partners and it's the balance between productivity and equity with the, the doctor who's been there for a really long time, the founding partner, is really tilting and making trapping that equity. And that's only tangential to the consulting that we do. Is like, well, do you want me to bring this up? Because it's definitely, it's definitely affecting your business development. So we can have this conversation now. But so I, I, I do think that the way that you've described is the right way. I do also see that there are, that it's not terribly common and i think it should be i really think that people listening should should take heed to that and i think it's one of the big issues of why younger docs aren't buying in as yeah, yeah as they could yeah. be and and here's the other thing that we did a, a while ago is you know so if if Boston IVF makes $1 in profit, then that profit is not distributed just based on equity the way we constructed this is that and again, there's different formulas, but 50% 50 or 50 cents of the dollar are distributed based on equity and 50% is distributed based on productivity. Because we realize human nature in the sense that as you get older, you're less productive as you were you know, when you were younger. If you're financially benefiting more than somebody who's working really hard, it doesn't work really well. It breeds resentment. So we have a blended profit, the way we distribute our profits, not just, it's not just based on equity. This is a bit tangential to everything we've discussed about, but I've been thinking it since you talked about the synergy between private practice and academic centers and that in corollary with how few fellowship programs are. I don't, 40 something, right? There's 40 something fellowship programs. We don't have nearly enough fertility specialists coming into the field to meet the demand. Is it, po is it even possible for a private practice in one area to approach a university system that probably already has a large medical school that might even have a really robust OBGYN division and say, hey, let's start this fellowship program together. Is that even possible? How, how would that work? 
Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a process of ACMG where, you know, to be to become a approved fellowship program. And there's certain criteria that need to be met. You need a certain number of REIs and certain volume, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, you, you can apply. And I think that is the beauty of having a partnership between an academic department and the private practice. Sure, that can be done. And that's that's what we've done. And it really has worked out great for us. For As I mentioned earlier, the, the main important reason is that we get to work with the fellows. A lot of them join us and can help grow our practice. So there is some, you know, it does help us quite a bit. We don't do it for financial reasons. There's not a financial advantage to us to to be part of the academic department. You know, it's not like teaching pays or anything like that. It's more just what your DNA is and, and what makes you feel good day to day. Well, Michael, how would you want to conclude with our audience about where you see Boston IVF going in the next five to 10 years and what you would want for your vision for the field? Yeah. So, you know, I think we all sort of understand that over time, there'll be, you know, two, three, four dominant programs in the country. I think there'll be others, of course, as well, but there'll be, you know, less than a handful of major players. And I think that that's a good thing. You know, I think that we'll, we'll see how that all evolves. I think from our perspective, we're look, looking to continue what we're doing. We're not here to take over the world. We may be one of the you know top two in terms of size in the country, but that's not what makes us really proud. What makes us proud is to continue to have a physician-focused organization that does good work and, and helps people. Uh, it sounds a little corny, I know, but it's really, that's what keeps us going. We all love what we do. It's physician-focused. We're looking to expand throughout the country, you know, maybe three, four, five, acquisitions and to become partners with people who are like-minded, who share our philosophy, who realize that if you do the right thing, you'll be financially rewarded. You know, you sort of thing, let the money follow you and don't run after the money. So it's it, that's our core value. And it's worked for the last 30 plus years. We love what we do. We're, we have a very happy group of physicians and clinicians and having a good time and, and being, you know, successful. So yeah, I, I think my message to everybody is it's not just about the money. It's about your life, your how you feel at the end of the day. And as I said, I've been doing this for 30 plus years and I enjoy coming to work now as much as I did on day one. And how fortunate can you be to be in that position where, you know, the field is is so challenging and, and, and changing so, so, so quickly that, you know, I don't think there are many physicians or anybody really who can who can look back and say, wow, what a great ride. And, and the future looks great. As long as we don't let the money drive everything, I think we'll be in good shape. We should all be so blessed. Dr. Michael Alper, thank you very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Hey, my pleasure, Griffin. Take care. Nice to be here. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.